Ken had mentioned earlier that uh, the men were treated yesterday to um, being able to take a look at the perspective of Jesus' family and his enemies on his own life. Um, And we really got to see the hardness of the uh, Pharisees' hearts, which was an encouragement to me and prepared my heart as it's really the New Testament counterpart to what we're going to be looking at today. I recently heard a comment by a man who had said that America is not a post-Christian culture. A post-Christian culture is a society that has been under the influence of the teaching of Scripture and has been exposed to the message of Jesus Christ and has since moved past it and is on to bigger and better things. And this man said that America is not a post-Christian culture. He said that it is a pre-Christian culture. And what he meant by that is that as a culture, we have deviated so far from the Bible that we've become so unashamedly wicked at all levels of society that it is as if the message of Christ had never even come here. And I don't think that we have to look too far at our politics, at our education, even at the highest levels, at our entertainment, at our understanding of what a family is and what we are as human beings to agree with that assessment. I certainly do. Um, I think at all of these, if you look at all of these kind of spheres of our, of our society and our nation, we see that we have become a hard-hearted people. That we've become a hard-hearted people under hard-hearted leaders. And if you're a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ then understandably you may be asking yourself or asking the Lord, God, what are you doing in all of this? Uh, Why is all of this happening? Everything that's going on uh, in my life individually, but also in my family, in my nation, in the entire world. God, what are you doing in all this? Why are these things happening? And what will become of all of this? The year 2014 saw the publication of a book entitled, Big Doors Swing on Small Hinges. I don't know what the book is about, but I think that in that title, it communicates something that's going to be very important for us this morning as we think about our passage. Uh, Big Doors Swing swing on Small Hinges. We're going to be uh, keeping our eyes out for two words, two words that are mentioned three times in our section of Scripture this morning. And they answer the why question that we just thought about. They answer the question of why. Why are these things happening? God, what are you doing in all of this? And those two words are the words, so that. So that. God is going to act, and he gives his reason. With these two words, so that. So why does God do the things that he does? Why why does God allow the things that he does? Spoiler In the introduction, God's ultimate goal in all things is his own glory. God's ultimate goal in all things is his own glory. And so I think we'll see in our passage today, and really the main point of our message is going to be even hard-hearted sinners will bring God glory in the end. So turn with me in your Bible, if you have not already, to Exodus 9. Exodus chapter 9. We're going to start at verse 13. This is going to be the seventh plague, the plague of hail. 
And as you're turning there, and you can stay there, I'm just going to read for you from Exodus 1, just to, I don't want to assume that everyone, as famous as this story is, I don't want to assume that everyone has a working understanding of uh, really what the people of God were experiencing at this time. So as you're turning to Exodus 9, I'll just read from you from the first chapter, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph was the um, son of Jacob who had brought the Israelites to this nation in the first place hundreds of years prior. Verse 9, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad." Sounds like the church. And the, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So this is the situation that the people of God are in before God begins a great work of redemption. Really, the the greatest work of redemption that we see in the Old Testament before the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And so, it is in this time of turmoil and anguish that God speaks to a man. That man is Moses. And he speaks to him in a bush that is ablaze yet not burned. And he says to him, I'm about to do a great work, and you're going to be the one through whom I'm going to do it. And Moses says, Me? You're, you're, going to use, you're going to use me to do this, this mighty, fantastic work of liberation of your people? I don't have the tools or the talent or, or anything that would make, set me apart and make me special for this job. I, I can't do this, God. I know. I know you can't. But I'm going to use you regardless. I'm going to use you in spite of your weaknesses. And so God sends Moses to Pharaoh sends him back to Egypt, and he gives him a command, free the Hebrews, let them go that they may serve me. Pharaoh refuses, and God brings about six different cycles, six subsequent cycles of plague on the nation of Egypt. And it's at this point that we arrive at our text for today, starting in verse 13, then... The Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. So in this first paragraph, uh, we are given the warning of the plague. The warning of the plague in this first paragraph. There's three paragraphs that we're going to be looking at. And so... He says, go, Moses, go to the most powerful man on planet Earth and give him a direct order. <laughs> a couple of things to observe about this. This is a command with divine authority. Pharaoh has authority over his soldiers, over his lieutenants and governors, over all the people of Egypt, but his authority is not ultimate. His authority is not supreme. And this is not 
God's suggestion or his wish, oh, Pharaoh, I wish you would do this. I want you to do this. Give him a direct order and tell him that the highest authority in the universe is ordering you to free the Hebrews. I think that we'll see here that, like I mentioned before, they're enslaved. They are ruthlessly enslaved, brutally enslaved, and they cannot free themselves. They're in a situation that they are in a situation for which they need a solution that is outside of themselves. And that is what the Lord God is going to do. Only God can free them. And he is about to do so through his chosen man. The Lord is jealous for his people. He is jealous for his people. He has a fierce love for his people. He has a committed love, a devoted love, an unbreakable covenant love for them. Not because of themselves. Later on in Deuteronomy, he would say, it's not because you were the greatest nation that I chose you, not because you were the most numerous of people. You were, the, you were the fewest of all people. There was nothing in you that gave me a reason to choose you over all the other nations that you're living amongst. But it is because of my great love for you. It is because I made a promise to Abraham that I would sooner be torn in two pieces than break. I think we see here as well that the purpose of their freedom is not for their own pure autonomy. They are not being set free from the bondage of Egypt. Be set free and then do whatever you want, wherever you want. No, he says, that they may serve me. That they may serve me. Their liberation from Pharaoh is so that they can worship the true God so that their only allegiance, their highest allegiance, would be to the Lord. Those of us who have been saved in Jesus Christ, who have put our faith and trust in him and are following him, we've been set free from the bondage of our sins so we can follow and worship him, to obey. It's unfortunate and troubling that there are some who would supposedly accept a forgiveness of their sins and then live however they want. I believe that there are many in the church globally, universally, who believe this. Unfortunately, I believe that there are, much, there are many more who would deny this with their mouths, but live as though they believe this. It's very unfortunate. We have been transferred from slavery to slavery. We have been moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We have been made, we have been freed from, from the, um, the, the burden and the bondage of slavery to sin to the liberation and the freedom of slavery to Christ. We have a new master. We are, our lives are not our own. We are now purchased with the blood of Christ. And we have a master who has said himself that he will sit his servants down at the table and serve them. That is the kind of master we have. And that is not the kind of master that sin is, nor was it the kind of master that Pharaoh was. Verse 14, he continues, For this time, I've already sent six cycles of plagues, but this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people. Hinge. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. 
If you're reading from a, a legacy standard Bible, uh, you'll see that, or I believe other translations as well, they will actually render it on your own heart instead of on you yourself, which if you're reading an ESV, it says, I will send all my plagues on your own heart. On your heart. The primary target of these plagues, it's not primarily the land of Egypt. It's Pharaoh's hardened heart. The primary purpose of the plagues, remember the so that. This is our first one. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Primary purpose of the plagues to display the unique supremacy of the Lord. Isaiah 46, 8 reads this, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is none like me. I am God and there is none. Oh, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. This is a direct challenge to Pharaoh. This is a direct challenge to the Egyptian gods for whom Pharaoh was supposed to be mediating between the gods and the Egyptians. I'm doing this so that I can be put on display. I'm doing this for my own glory, so that you can understand who I really am. In chapter 5, Pharaoh, you asked, who is the Lord that I should obey him? You're about to find out when I'm done with you. He continues on in verse 15, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Pharaoh, I could have ended you by now. I've chosen not to. I have other plans for you. I'm not preserving you, Pharaoh. I'm reserving you for further cycles of judgment. He's essentially saying, Pharaoh, this world, you may be the king of Egypt, but this world is mine. This world is mine, and I have all power to do whatever I please with it. I have given you permission to continue to exist, Pharaoh. I have allowed you to continue your reign. And this is a great reminder for anyone here who is not in the Lord Jesus Christ that every breath you take, God has permitted you to have. Every word that you speak against him, every thought that you have to resist his rule over you, he has allowed you to do that. And the New Testament says that his patience, his kindness, he means for it to lead to repentance. Unfortunately, this is something that Pharaoh, this is a path that he is not going to go down. I have given you permission to continue to exist, Pharaoh. But, verse 16, but for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. This is going to be the verse, the controlling verse of our passage this morning. This is going to be our, uh, you could think of it as God's thesis statement for this, really this, this whole 
cycle of plagues, but even this one of hail in particular. And like the, the, like the planets orbit the sun, all the characters, all the people, all the events are going to be revolving around this phrase. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Why do the forces of evil in the world exist? They exist by the sovereignty of God for the glory of God. They don't exist outside of his control, but within his control and for his ultimate purposes. Pharaoh, who put you on that throne, Pharaoh? Say say it. Say my name. Who put you on that throne? I did. Pharaoh, I put you as king of Egypt. Biden, I put you in the White House. Newsom, I put you in Sacramento. Even Satan, whom the New Testament calls the God of this world, lowercase g God. He is there by God's design. What confidence we have in our God that he is not competing with forces of evil. That there, I, I saw this, uh, this photo when I was in high school of a culturally inaccurate portrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ arm wrestling with some red character. <laughs> this is what's going on for your soul right now. Give me a break. (laughs) Stupidity. We have a God who's reigning over all things and all people. They exist for the fame of God's name. Psalm 138 verse 2 reads, I bow down toward your holy temple. I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things... Two things, your name and your word. Ancient Egypt, in all likelihood, was the greatest civilization on planet Earth at the time. The most advanced technologically, the most sophisticated culturally, the most powerful military in all likelihood. Yet for all of its supposed glory, all of its supposed pomp, It existed for the purpose of a higher glory, or a greater glory, a truer glory, that of God. Egypt has been exalted so that when God smacks it back down, he will be seen as almighty. He'll be seen for who he is. Not that he may become almighty, but that he may be recognized by those who are refusing to recognize him for who he is. That's why all wicked superpowers exist in the world today, human or demonic. Not by chance, not by accident, not by their own doing, but by God's permission. Verse 16 is really a signature text on God's sovereignty over evil in this world. So much so that the Apostle Paul, in what's arguably his greatest letter, Romans, in arguably the definitive chapter on God's sovereignty, Romans 9, quotes this passage. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Did God accomplish his purpose? 
This is one of the most famous stories in human history. Still told throughout the entire world to this day. Even in our biblically illiterate society, the average unbeliever is at least vaguely familiar with this story. And the entire Bible looks back on this event, this great event of the Exodus, of God freeing his people, liberating his people. It is the great demonstration of God's power. Did he accomplish his purpose? I think so. He goes on, verse 17, You are still exalting yourself against my people. Still. After frogs and flies and gnats and all of these things, you, are, you refuse. Don't you get it? I am the God of heaven and earth. You're still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Why? What could blind a person so far? Blind a person so much to, to, to absolutely refuse to give in. It's a five-letter word that we celebrate as a nation every June. It is the common denominator of sin. Pride. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Says the book of Proverbs. Pride is the exaltation of self, the, the, the lifting up of yourself. It is seeing God on his throne and wanting him to get off so that you can sit there yourself. So God says, because of your stubbornness and your pride, verse 18, behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. God warns Pharaoh of the unprecedented severity of the coming plague. Pharaoh, this is going to be a storm like you have never seen. And you know what's the source of this storm? It's not your gods. It is me. I am the source, the catalyst, the origin of what is about to come, and you are not going to like it. This is my world, Pharaoh. You're just living in it. Something unusual, verse 19. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Wow. Even in judgment, God is extending the offer of mercy to whoever would listen. To whoever would listen. The whole Bible is a display of God's glory in both judgment and salvation. Both of these things. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ does the same thing. It warns of the coming judgment, and then it offers mercy to the repentant. It offers mercy. It tells sinners that, listen, you're not just separated from God. If you haven't made a conscious commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and obedience, if you have not done that, you're not just separated from God, you are at war with him. I'm not talking about Pharaoh, I'm talking about whoever may be in this room. You are at war with God. You may not think that. Oh, oh no, I go to church. I, I, have, I have nice thoughts about God. You're at war with him. And it's a war you're not going to win. But he's offering to you 
peace. You can have peace with God. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can have eternal life. And the only way is to bow the knee and submit and come to faith in Jesus Christ, to believe in Him. Not just believe that He exists, believe Him. Believe in what He says about Himself and about what His death accomplished. The cross is the ultimate intersection of God's love for sinners and His hate for wickedness. It is the meeting place of the wrath of God and the grace of God. And in like manner, even in judgment here, God shows mercy in this warning. He elaborates on the severity of the plague and he tells them no one will survive. No one will survive if left unprotected. Then, verse 20. Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. There were some of the Egyptians who believed. And they didn't just, again, believe in the God of the Hebrews. They believed the God of the Hebrews. They feared his word. They took it seriously. They didn't just blow it off like so many of the Egyptians did and so many in our culture do today. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, yeah, the word of God, judgment is coming. You know what? You've been saying that for however long. Things are just going to continue as the way they are. They considered the previous plagues that had ravaged their land and realized that it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. Realizing that Pharaoh hardening his heart, he's not doing it in the best interest of his people. He's doing it against their best interest. That he's not doing it for, for the sake of his people, but at the expense of them. And after hearing this warning, their eyes are opened to the wickedness and the pride of Pharaoh and the patience and the grace of God, even to them. Verse 21, But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. In spite of the previous plagues, the transparent warning, the belief of their neighbors, some Egyptians refuse. They follow Pharaoh, they trust their gods, they harden their hearts, they disregard God's warning. I'm afraid for them. And as we'll see in the next section, they paid the price. And they have no one to blame but themselves. They were warned. And so, with knowledge comes accountability. And that is a reminder for those of us today, those of us who know that you are now responsible for the knowledge that you have of the forgiveness that is available in Christ. And it is that knowledge that will confront you on the last day. You knew about Christ. Did you accept? Did you believe? Did you submit? Did you take the free gift? Or didn't you? And so we move from this, this section of warning to the execution of the plague. God sends a mediated, severe, and discriminating plague on the land of Egypt. Verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire, ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. 
it's mediated through Moses. Something interesting for us to think about. Why, why use a human instrument? Why use a, a, a vehicle, essentially, especially one as insufficient as Moses was for this task? I think for one thing, to validate the legitimacy of his ministry and message. If you think about miracles at all in the Bible, you see three great waves, three great periods of, of miraculous signs and wonders. You see the, Moses in the Exodus, you see Elijah and, Eli- and Elisha with the introduction of the age of uh, the prophets when they come to warn God's people, turn back from your sins, turn back to the Lord. So you see the Exodus, you see uh, the prophets. Where else do we see miracles in the Bible? The beginning, the beginning of what? Book of Acts. The beginning of the church. And so you see, miracles are not simply for the purpose of, of just showing off they exist to validate the ministry of those to whom God is giving those signs. But as you'll see throughout the history of Israel after the Exodus, miracles went away. Miracles went away after, after the, the initial prophets God sent. And you even see in the church, miracles just begin to, to fade away because God's message has been validated, His word is completed. And so... What's the point of mediation here? To, to validate the legitimacy of his ministry and message and to leave no room for interpretation that these things came from the Egyptian gods. That this was God doing this work through God's messenger. Verse 24, There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never had been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Total devastation in Egypt. So far, they've endured the water of the Nile turning to blood, an invasion of frogs, a cloud of gnats, a horde of flies, the death of their livestock, and an outbreak of painful boils. It's not getting better. But the, dis- the degree of destruction inflicted by this plague surpasses everything that has come before. I remember working a few years ago in Santa Clara. I was in a warehouse, and it was January. And I began, my uh, coworkers and I, we began to hear this pitter-patter on the roof of this warehouse. And we thought, hmm, that's kind of strange. I don't think anybody's up there right now. So we walk outside, and there's hail in Santa Clara. It's supposed to be, I mean, even in the winter, it's supposed to be warmer down there than it is here, and it wasn't hailing up here this day. And we walked out into it just because it was so unusual, and then it ended a few minutes later. We went back inside and finished our work day. That hail was really nothing more than an exaggerated snowfall, though. Little, um, little uh, Chipotle ice cubes, or sorry, uh, Chick-fil-A ice cubes, those little circular ones just falling for about 10 minutes or so and then ending. This plague was not like that. These are essentially ice rocks, like boulders coming down, and... They were being hurled down by the hand of God himself to ensure 
total destruction. Total destruction. Every animal was killed. Every crop was destroyed. That was, that was ready. Crops that were ready, they were destroyed. Every tree of the field broken. Every person killed who was not protected, who had not taken shelter. Destruction in Egypt. Verse 26, only in the land of Goshen, which was this, this area of Egypt that the Hebrews had been given by Joseph when he was prime minister early on, centuries before. They'd been given this area of land in which they could live. Only in this section of Egypt was there no hail. They were spared. Again, God has a fierce, fierce love for his people. The people of Israel and believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize that God has a fiercely loyal love to you? A protective love. That doesn't mean bad things aren't going to happen in your life. But it means that in spite of every circumstance, you can have the assurance that God is for you and that God is with you. They're spared and they are witnesses. They have front row seats to the judgment of those who had uh, tortured and oppressed and harassed them ruthlessly. And when on the last day we witness the final judgment, the final destruction of those who have uh, not put their faith in Christ, I don't think we will be thinking, I pray that we won't be thinking, yes, look at them get what they deserve. Look at those sinners over there under, under that judgment. That is exactly what is coming to them. I think we're going to be thinking, that could have been me if it were not for God's undeserved love. That could have been me in there. The plague doesn't just distinguish between Hebrews and Egyptians, but between Egyptians and Egyptians. Remember, there were some wise Egyptians who believed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They took his word seriously. They believed, and then you know what they did? They acted on their belief. Faith is always followed by obedience. Faith is followed by following. And if there's no following, then there's no faith. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. Um, None of us will achieve that in this lifetime. No one. But there is going to be a new direction about your life. If you're following Christ, there is going to be an overall positive trajectory of your life, an overall positive quality about your life, a quality that is new, a quality that is different from those around you. Will we fail? Will we fall? Absolutely. Will we do foolish things? Absolutely. But the overall trend of our lives is in the hands of God, and he will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So they believed and they acted on their belief. They took shelter as God had warned them to do. And I think that this is important for us to, to, to dwell on for a moment. These Egyptians, the distinction between them. Remember, it doesn't matter what your background is. You can come to faith in the true God through his son, Jesus Christ. He is calling people from every nation, from every false religion, whether it is 
Islam, whether it is Buddhism, Shintoism, Taoism, the Church of Rome, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, modern-day Judaism. He is calling people from every nation and every false religion to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you breathing and are you a sinner? Christ is for you then. Christ is for you. And we see little glimpses of that, even here early on, the grace that he shows to these people who are initially not even his own. They believed and they acted on their belief. And then there were these foolish Egyptians who joined Pharaoh in hardening their hearts and they were, along with all their things, annihilated. So we see here in the final section of our text this morning the aftermath of the plague. That even after the unprecedented destruction of the land, of his people, of his crops, of the livestock, Pharaoh further hardens his heart and refuses to free God's people. Verse 27, Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. He appears to have a change of heart. And from the looks of it, it's, he's not just beginning to budge on this. He has done a complete 180 on this. When we're sorry for things, we tend not to come out with a full admission of guilt. We tend to say things like, yeah, you know, so I did some stuff and you did some stuff and I guess maybe I went a little bit too far, but you know, it was only because... XYZ. Even in our apologies, we are still defending ourselves. We are still putting up those um, protective measures uh, so we don't look like we were totally in the wrong. But he says, This time I have not made a mistake. I have sinned this time. Sinned. He even goes so far as to acknowledge the righteousness of God in this situation. I've sinned. The Lord is in the right. God's right in this. I think one of the most difficult things on planet Earth is the the ability to say, you were right and I was wrong. And I think if we're honest, you would have to agree with me. And if we're to take his words at face value, this looks like repentance. It looks like repentance. I mean, if you're going to be crying out for relief from judgment, you you might want to make it clear that you're sorry. God, I am not sorry for what I've done, but I still want you to stop this. Don't think that's going to work out very well. If If I'm 10 years old and in trouble and told to sit in my room all day while my friends are all outside having fun, then uh, I'm gonna, I think it might be a good idea for me to say sorry for whatever it is that I did, even if I don't mean it. So Pharaoh prefaces his plea for relief with a profession of repentance. He says all the right things. He says all the right things. 
I was told when I was a kid, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. He even says, he even includes an intent to obey God's command. An intent. I'm not just sorry for what I did. I'm going to turn from this and do the right thing. He says, I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. He seems to understand repentance better than a lot of Christians today do. It's not just about the things we say. It's about the, the intent and the drive of our heart to turn from our sin and to obey God. At least on the surface, it seems like he understands that. An acknowledgement of God's righteousness? Check. Uh, guilty for having sinned against that righteousness? Check. An intent, a sin, supposedly insere, sincere intention to follow God's command? Check. The ducks look like they're in a row. And verses 29 and 30 tell us that God will grant the request of Pharaoh. He will grant it. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know. So that you may know. Our third hinge for the day. That the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear God. We come to our last so that, which answers, again, the question of why. Why are you doing this, God? What is the purpose for this? Why is God going to scale back on these plagues? He seems to already know that Pharaoh isn't sorry. So why? So that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Again, what's God's ultimate goal in all things? Michael knows. It's his glory. It's his glory. That is the design of everything he does and everything he permits. God is telling Pharaoh, I'm about to put an end to this plague, just like you've asked, to demonstrate that it is my right and it is in my power alone to do so. Again, Pharaoh, your power, your power over Egypt, your power over my people, it is an illusion It is what I have permitted you to have. Our Lord, before he was crucified, told Pontius Pilate that he would have no authority unless it were given him from above. Pharaoh, this is my world. These are my clouds. This is my rain. This is my thunder. This is my hail. I'm in control of all things. I know all things. And you know what I know? I know you're not sorry. I know that your repentance is a sham. I know that your confession is insincere. You can say all the right things, but you can't lie to someone who can read hearts. And you know what? If you're sitting in here, You cannot lie to someone who can read hearts. And he says, I know that your heart is still hard. We sing sometimes the song, Not in Me. And in one of the, I believe it's the second or third verse of the song, it says, No humble dress 
No fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth. Even just reciting the truth can justify a single wrong. No recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. No humble dress, meaning that you're, you're, you're dressing up with the, the garments of, of humility and repentance. You can't hide. You can't hide your intent. You can't hide your heart. You can't hide what's in your soul. God knows, as he knew here. Look at verse 31. You see a set of parentheses. And it says here, The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. Moses gives us this seemingly insignificant agricultural detail. He distinguishes between these two, types, these two groups of crops. One was struck down by the hail because it had already come up out of the ground, and one was not because it hadn't come up yet. I believe that the intent of Moses in this is to show us that Pharaoh took comfort in that not all the crops were destroyed because they hadn't even come up yet. He may be thinking to himself, hmm, it's this season of harvest, but a next season of harvest is going to come and those ones are going to be okay because the hail didn't get to them. I believe that he's indicating to us here the, really the, the, the comfort that, Foses, that Moses is, um, sorry, that Pharaoh is deriving from the fact that I have something to fall back on. I don't need to give in to God. I don't need to submit. I don't need to free the Hebrews. I still have something that will put me at an advantageous position. What what a fool. To use the same illustration as I used before, if if I'm 10 years old and I'm grounded and I can't go outside and play with my friends, but I have uh, my phone and I have a video game console, then I can just chat with my friends and play online with them. I don't need to go outside. I don't need to be sorry for what I've done. What do I have to be sorry for? And that's what, he's, that's what Moses is indicating to us, I believe, with this detail. So, verse 33, So Moses went out from the city of Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. God ends the plague. He gives him the relief. Not because Pharaoh is sorry. Not because his repentance is genuine. But for his own purposes and for his own glory. To show himself as greater than Pharaoh. 34, but when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. He and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. As soon as he's given the relief that he requested, he goes back on his confession. How frequently do we or have we confessed of a sin or of sins in general? Because we're going through some trial or some hardship. And once we're given the relief that we asked for, we just go back and do the same thing. 
He shows that he was never really sorry, that his penitence was a complete falsehood. And it shows really the magnitude of his foolishness to think that he can manipulate God. That he could lie to God. That he could lie to a God who knows all things, who sees his heart as openly as he sees anything in this world. What a fool. It says Pharaoh sinned. How did he sin? He hardened his heart. He calcified his heart. He calloused it, making it further insensitive to the warnings of God. One of the most dangerous things that you can do is to hear the warning of God's coming wrath, of his coming fury against wickedness, and to be extended the offer of mercy and grace and forgiveness and love, to have been given, the, the, offered the free gift free of charge. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to clean yourself up. Just come to me that you may drink of the waters of eternal life. Out of pure love on God's part. To hear the message that you can be saved from God by God. And then continue to disregard it as if it was nothing more than some person handing you a coupon in the street. And it wasn't just Pharaoh, it was his servants as well. Stupidity. Stupidity. These people who just had their servants and their livestock and their crops just decimated, refused. They refused to yield. They refused to bow the knee to submit to the Lord in their hearts. Verse 35 repeats the fact that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. As you'll find reading through Scripture, as you study it, that uh, repetition, they, they didn't have exclamation points, and so a repetition was what was used to make an emphasis, to emphasize a point, to really drive it home. Jesus in the New Testament says, Truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, listen up. Everything I say is important, but what I'm about to say is very important. Paul in his letters says, This saying is trustworthy, and deserving of full acceptance, which are basically two ways to say the same thing. Listen to what I'm saying. Believe what I'm saying. Even in the heavenly sanctuary, where the angels are singing God's praises, where where one day we will join them, they are singing not holy, but holy, holy, holy. There's a a, um, superlative degree about their worship, that this is, he's not just holy, or he's not just holier, he's the holiest of all beings. So there's this emphasis you see here with this repetition. And he's emphasizing the fact that despite all the warnings, all the mercy, all the destruction before their very eyes, despite despite all the repentance professed, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He further hardened his heart. His heart is becoming progressively hardened with each refusal. He would not let God's people go. He decided that for whatever reason it was in his best interest to continue to refuse. Unfortunately, as many 
of our neighbors and family members and friends do today. If you read beyond our text this morning, you'll find that Pharaoh's heart remained hardened to the end. And that refusal to give in to your Creator, who is offering you a way out of his, from under His judgment, that pride is the very essence of all sin in general, but of the sin of unbelief in particular. It is the common denominator of all sins. It is the exaltation of self. I praise the Lord that I'm confident most of the people listening to the sound of my voice have consciously abandoned any hope of earning their way into heaven. That they know, that you know, that it is not by any degree of cleaning yourself up that you can earn God's favor. I praise the Lord that I'm confident that most of you have trusted in the once-for-all, all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life. But I would caution you, I'm talking to believers, I would caution you before you begin to think that this is a they problem. Because there are times in our lives, there are seasons in our lives, when we become calcified to certain sins, to certain things that offend God. When we become hardened and numbed, um, discipline awaits us. I pray and beg and ask you to revisit those issues and to humble yourself before God and to exalt Him instead of yourself, even in those things. But I imagine that there are some here who have not come to Christ, who have not believed neither in Christ nor believed Christ. And you're in the process of hardening your heart, even this very moment. Whether that hardening looks like outright rebellion or passive indifference, you are hardening your hearts. I say again, if you're listening to my voice and you, are, you have not come to Christ, you are hardening your hearts this very moment. Turn back. Whether it's uh, this, this rebellion, this explicit rebellion, whether you've heard the message and you're kicking against it, and no, I will not, I will not believe, I will not change my life, I will hold on to the things that I love, I will hold on to the things that, uh, that make me happy in this life, supposedly make me happy. The things that you hate, I will not give in. I refuse to come to Christ. You've heard the truth. You've been offered forgiveness. And you've said, that is idiotic and it is not for me. I warn you, turn. Because you are accountable for that knowledge. Otherwise, you may be in here. Maybe you've been coming for years. Maybe you've listened to the preaching. You've sung the songs. Maybe you even have nice things to say about Jesus. Positive things. He was a good man. He was a good moral teacher. That is ridiculous. That he was merely a good moral teacher. That he was merely a man. And he just, you know, you could have all the nice things to say about him that you want. But if you have never committed your life to him in faith and obedience, and you still imagine that for whatever reason you're good enough, you're a good enough person to get into heaven. I warn you, you are hardening your heart toward the God into whose hands you will fall after this life. 
And the longer you do it, the longer you, you insensitize your heart to these warnings, to these offers of grace, the longer you do it, the easier it will become. There is a judgment coming that far surpasses hail. There is a judgment coming that will be mediated by Christ. It will be more severe than this plague. It is a judgment that will never end, that will only continue progressively into eternity. And there will be this great, just like there was this separation between the Hebrews and the Egyptians, from from between Egyptians and Egyptians, there will be a great separation in eternity between those who have embraced Christ, who have who have said yes to the offer of forgiveness, free forgiveness, and those who have not. I pray this day that you not harden your heart. I thank the Lord for those of us, and even for my own soul, that he spared me when I was hardening my heart. And I pray that you turn back. And if you have not, done this, and if you want to know where you stand with the Lord, if you don't want a further heart in your heart, then we want to talk to you. And you can come and talk to any one of your neighbors who knows Christ or the leadership of this church. But I pray and ask and beg, even in the seat that you are sitting in this very moment, turn to God. Look at the judgment that is coming. Look at the free offer of grace that he is extending to you and come. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this account in really a a famous story, a well-known story to many of us, a story that even in some places is more familiar to uh, our our Sunday school students than even us and the lessons that they teach us. Lord, Let us not look down our noses at those who have hardened their hearts because that was us. Give us soft hearts still. Even in Christ, soften our hearts. And Lord, help us to extend the warnings and the offer of judgment and love to those of our neighbors, of our family members, and our friends who are walking down this path. And Lord, may in all things, whether salvation or judgment, we pray that you would be glorified in all of these. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.